In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Shrink Spot. My name's Hunter Mulcair. I'm Amy Donaldson. This is a podcast all about psychology. We are both psychologists. And every episode we choose a topic, a disorder or a facet of psychology that we think is interesting and try and nut it out and talk about some of the research and things that we know about it and talk about how it relates to real world stuff. Mm-hmm. Trying to, you know, pull the curtain back behind psychology and just nerd out. Yeah. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about a very interesting disorder called factitious disorder, better known as Munchausen syndrome which is the intentional production, feigning or faking of physical or psychological symptoms in order to assume the sick role. Mm. So it's a really, really fascinating disorder. Do you know much about it? Had you known much about it before we kind of most of it? Most of the kind of knowledge I had about it or most of the contact that I'd had with it had been sort of public cases or things in popular culture or stuff like that. I hadn't actually seen it. Clinically, I don't know about you. No, I've never. I, I asked some people around the hospital, quite a few different groups of people had said that they'd definitely come across one or two cases. Certainly had a clients talk about it occurring in their family, mm-hmm. but them not being the victim of it or something. Okay. So, so you can have factitious disorder or Munchausen syndrome. Actually, not, there's a bit of a distinction about that. I'll get to that mm-hmm. a bit later. So someone making themselves sick. But it also can be occur in the form of making someone else sick. So mm-hmm. faking that this is the case. And so this is Munchausen's by proxy or, or factitious disorder imposed on another where the perpetrator acts as if the individual that he or she is caring for has a physical or mental illness. Mm-hmm. And when that child, usually not actually sick. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to talk through both disorders. They can co-occur and then later on I'll talk about some research about how the prevalence sort of overlaps between the two. So for some, the symptoms of factitious disorder is alleviated for themselves when there's a vulnerable person. Or I found a lot of literature on like pets, animals. No way. As the target, yeah, is sort of there to impose an illness on. So there's lots of vet research about how to respond when someone keeps on bringing a pet back, which makes sense really if it's about a vulnerable person and help-seeking around that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So a couple of popular culture examples. Mm -hmm. So the one that I remembered was was the TV show called House, House MD, and there's an episode called Deception with Cynthia Nixon from Sex and City fame. Yep. And from, I think she ran for the... New York mayor. Yeah. yeah. Not too long ago. Anyway, and that episode gives a flavor of a medical team essentially like chasing their tail, trying to diagnose and outsmart a patient who's presenting with symptoms. She presented with Cushing syndrome or symptoms, mm. and that seemed to be being triggered by taking adrenocortotropic hormone. And then what they do is they kind of give her access to some other medications so that they tell her harmful and that she then takes and they work out that she's taken them because it causes a particular symptom. Okay. And then the medicine got a bit too complicated after that for me. (laughs) But the episode ends with her being confronted with this diagnosis Mm. and then presenting to a new hospital under a different alias, I think. Continuing the same thing. Yeah, so the pattern continuing. And Mm. and she'd like learnt from it. Mm. The other thing which I've not actually seen is there's a show called The Act, which details a true story of a factitious disorder imposed on another. 
in that case, a mother called D had forced her daughter, Gypsy, to seek treatments for non-existent conditions. So this is kind of mm. quite awful, like including surgery to treat weak eye muscles, mm. removal of salivary glands to stop drooling and tooth extractions. Yeah. So, so invasive. Yeah, and I think actually what ended up happening is I think the daughter ended up killing yeah. the mother. Yeah, she did. To get away from her. Mm. So what I might do is I might run through the criteria. Yeah. So... They're relatively simple, but my impression is it's quite hard to diagnose. Mm. Is that sort of the flavor you got from Yeah, I think so, because it's essentially ruling out a whole bunch of other things and then trying to find a pattern of behavior that someone's deliberately trying to obscure. So it's it's quite difficult. Yeah, so it's one of those things in psychology and in hospital-based psychology where you have to do quite a detailed history Mm. from someone so in addition to the medicine you Mm -hmm. would actually have to look at sort of behaviorally what's going on here Mm. like are they presenting in in a typical way for these typical disorders Mm. my impression is they often turn up with unusual disorders yeah something that's a little bit left of center Yeah. yeah so the criteria so first group falsification of physical or psychological signs or symptoms so symptoms is what Someone reports and signs is what you can see and assess. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or induction of injury or disease, and that's associated with like identified deception. Mm. So it's kind of like you know, uh, fecal matter in a saline drip, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know, Delightful. Yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. The individual presents him or herself to others as ill, injured, or impaired. The deceptive behaviour is evident even in the absence of obvious external rewards. So that's kind of quite important. So it's it's not that they're doing it for money or they're they're doing it for access to drugs, it's that they're doing it to appear sick Mm. or to assume the sick role. Yeah. And that the behaviour is not better explained by another mental disorder. Mm. So like delusional disorder or psychotic disorder or something like that. Yeah. You've got a case study? Yes, I do. I don't know about you, but I came across so many different case studies that have been published. This one is quite a brief one, but I think captures it quite nicely. Mm. It was published as a letter to the editor of the International Journal of Cardiology in 2015. It's entitled Munchausen Syndrome Presented as Recurrent Syncope by Carranza Poulos and colleagues. So these authors talk about the case of a 25-year-old woman who was referred to their centre for evaluation of recurrent syncope episodes. So that's passing out to people who don't know medical terminology so she'd reported at least eight episodes of sudden loss of consciousness three of them had involved injury over about a two-year period she didn't describe anything that sort of led up to these happening and they happened both when she was sitting and standing she denied drug use as well so she had a long history of hospital admissions in district hospitals as well as then in outpatient and private clinic visits she had a whole series of tests so it sounds like they did the the full range of neuro and cardiology tests so you know there were 24-hour monitoring there was echocardiograms stress tests challenge tests, neurological exams, MRIs, tilt table tests, just about everything you could possibly do, including having an implantable loop recorder, what do you call it, uh, surgically inserted to monitor her heart over a period of time. And one week after she had this, she then started reporting fever and muscle pains and chills and things like that. And she kept on coming back to the centre again and again, saying it was because of the monitor. No one ever read her temperature as high any time that she came back. She was placed on antibiotics, a whole like a bunch of different courses of antibiotics. Nothing. 
They also did a bunch of blood tests and they discovered that she had repeatedly fabricated the printout of the blood test. Mm -hmm. So she hadn't fabricated the tests themselves, but she'd scanned the lab results and falsified the values to match what they should have been if there was an issue. Mm. So when they kind of started suspecting what was going on, she stopped complaining of fevers and but continued her regular follow-up and then a psychiatric consultation was suggested. And essentially this case ends with her continuing to have the interrogations and stuff around what could be going on and no heart abnormality or anything like that being identified, no further episodes of passing out and it just kind of trailing off. Mm. Yeah, And this seemed pretty consistent with the stuff I saw with the cases that didn't end in quite disastrous kind of circumstances Mm -hmm. like accidentally killing a child or something like that or killing themselves it seemed to be this kind of thing of just fading out Mm. or going to a different medical practice yeah yeah Yeah, i think there's a bit of a difference between a chronic and an acute yeah course so that they can formulate around people will have tendency towards somaticization Mm. and kind of had had a history of being sick hospitalization as a child and so someone might develop a factitious disorder mm. as, a, as a result of an acute life stress. Right. Like or so it's sort of a way of coping with that Yeah, stress. potentially, yeah. yeah. But then there's also the other group would be a more chronic pattern mm. where it kind of it escalates rather than peters out, yeah. that kind of thing. So what is fascinating, so in the DSM, they always have descriptions about prevalence and incidence. In the DSM-5, so the most recent version said, incidence is unknown mm-hmm. of this okay. disorder, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and there's not many disorders where it's like that. Yep. There's usually an estimate. Yeah, there's usually, you know, there's a range, okay. you know, there's an understanding yeah. that, you know, these numbers are fuzzy yeah. and depending on what it is and, you know... Like Often the setting as well. It's usually yeah. like in community this, in clinics yeah, this. That's it. Yeah, So other writing says it's the most undiagnosed condition in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. You know, it can take sort of six to ten years before diagnosis. It's a long time, of isn't a problem. it? Yeah. So the figures that I saw was that 1% of patients who present to medical health professionals. Okay. And 5 to 10% of all hospital admissions, which... I thought sounded very high. Yeah. Because if you think about that, that's like one in 10 hospital admissions would be factitious disorder, which yeah. I don't think that would be correct. I suppose it depends on the amount of times that someone presents yeah. an individual patient. It might be, I'm thinking of the stats around self-harm presentations or admissions mm. where 1% of the people presenting account for a massive amount of yeah, 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 all yeah. of the admissions. Yeah, yeah. So I found an interesting paper by Harold Schrader and colleagues from Behavioural Neurology 2019 that mm-hmm. looks at the incidence and diagnosis of Munchausen's and other factitious disorders and malingering. It's not common that incidence studies that interesting, mm. but it's, it's interesting in that this is a rare disorder mm-hmm. and that large systemic studies on factitious disorders are rare. So like what you were saying before, there's, there's a lot of case studies. So they say there's more than 1,200 publications on PubMed mm-hmm. of factitious disorder, but mostly they're clinical presentations. Yeah. Just like yeah. what you read, yeah. right? So this study that 
that I'm talking about was conducted using the Norwegian Patient Registry. They have a very, very good system of health records where you can track patients through the health system. Mm. Everyone has a unique code. So they were able to conduct the first nationwide epidemiological study on the frequency of these disorders. Awesome. So they looked at a nine-year period between 2008 to 2016 and they got a de-identified list of patients with the ICD-10 code mm-hmm. of factors disorder, which is F68.1, if you're wanting to be particular. <laughs> what that's described as is the intentional production of feigning of symptoms or disabilities, either physical or psychological. Okay. And they also included malingerers, so which is like all this... For the financial, yeah, or, financial gain. Yeah, conscious stimulation about... To, for, for secondary gain, essentially. Mm. So they got a list. Then what they did is they wanted to confirm these diagnoses. So they tried to contact diagnostic clinicians who could remember the patient. They could reread the file, the clinician. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of limited to a smaller group of people because, you know, who they could contact or the, who the, the names of the clinicians were recorded mm-hmm. or to health institutions where they've been diagnosed. And the authors provide information on factitious disorder, malingering and somatization disorder, which would be common differential diagnosis. I'll explain about those in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And asked whether they still thought the patient qualified or whether they'd adjust the diagnosis. And so they were particularly interested in whether any of the confirmed cases conform to the classical picture of Munchausen syndrome. So Munchausen syndrome was first described by Asher in 1951. Mm-hmm. So this is so there's factitious disorder, which what we've talked about, mm. and Munchausen's is, I guess, like a subcategory of mm. it. So, so this is the description. Feigned severe illness of dramatic and emergency nature, factitious evidence of disease, surreptitiously produced by interference with diagnostic procedures or by self-mutilation, history of many hospitalizations, extensive travel or visits to innumerable physicians, evidence of laparotomy scars or burr holes, pathologic lying, aggressive, unruly, evasive behavior, and departure from the hospital against medical advice. So that's, okay. that's the classic Munchausen thing. So Which sort of feels like perhaps a more severe end of mm, factitious, perhaps. It's a more severe and dramatic. Yeah. Like sort of a mis- mis- bit more uh, histrionic. Mm. In, in that way. Mm-hmm. So 237 were diagnosed with factitious disorder. Mm-hmm. 40% were female. So that would be an average annual incidence of five patients per million Norwegians. Okay. Average age of 38. Hmm. So what was interesting is that they then whittled that number down. They seemed to think that there was a lot of misdiagnosis. Okay. So there was three specialists in private practice who diagnosed 87 of these cases, but none of them were actually thought to be true cases. Just between those three, yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. Out of like, out of like uh, over a thousand specialists, like there's okay. these three. That so they had like a real thing for, for it. it. They seem to think that the 86 of those were malingerers and one was somatization. Okay, and that left 146 in health institutions, 50% female, and the average number of admissions was 5.7. And of these patients, they were able to only confirm 24 cases. And of these, only 11 correctly qualified for factitious disorder. Mm. And only two, and they were, they were two women, had typical Munchausen syndrome. Okay. So, extrapo- so very rare. Yeah. So ex- well, so very rare that it's... Diagnosed. That it's, yeah. that it's recognized. Yeah. Right. So extrapolating out, they said that 5 million or so patients were given an ICD-10 diagnosis over the nine-year study period. Mm-hmm. And that would be 0.00023 
percent. Okay, we're diagnosed with Munchausen's. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So th- these authors suggest that there's a significant underdiagnosis, and one aspect is that patients will flee the ward mm. if confronted, and also that the clinical presentation is diverse. So it's not just faking one way, right? It's that you any any biological system or psychological system mm. could be tampered with if, yeah. if you get my tampered. Yeah. And um, you could do that in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so out There's of infinite possibilities. Yeah, that's yeah. It, like the the creativity of the human mind. Yeah, and frequently, like, so this might be hard to pick up, but also that doctors might not want to make that diagnosis out of fear of stigmatization. Mm. Also, like, I think doctors would err on the side of making a medical diagnosis than a psychiatric one. Yeah, just in case they were missing something. Yeah, which I mean, and like, and I think that that's perfectly legitimate, right? Mm. Like. You know, there's often cases like you come across in a hospital setting where they're like, oh, we think it's this or we think it's, you know, they're just depressed or something and actually, no, they've got, Mm. they've actually got something going on. And in the oncology setting, I get a lot of people who say, Mm. like, I went to the doctor lots of times Mm. and then I went to a different GP and they ordered just this simple test and that picked up that I had a tumour. Yeah. So it's like it's, you know, that, you know, doctors erring on the side of caution, I think it's probably a good thing. Totally understandable and a good thing mm. yeah and also like misdiagnosis is common so like and then they were basically sort of saying it seemed to think that malingering would perhaps be you know people who are feigning illness for gain mm. financial gain or access to drugs or something so would be a better thing okay so that's sort of the incidents mm-hmm. Do you have a comment about that or what are your thoughts on that i i think it's interesting that kind of picking it up versus not and it, when we get to some of the stuff that I'm going to cover, it particularly with the kids stuff, it seems to be far higher the prevalence that's estimated in By that. By proxy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about the gap there or about whether there's something about the proxy that means that it's more easily identified than... Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think was it one of the signs with proxy is that the child gets better yeah. when they're removed from the caretaker. Yeah. And that's yeah, a telling sign. Exactly. So to diagnose, you need to demonstrate that there's surreptitious actions to misrepresent, stimulate or cause signs or symptoms of illness or injury mm-hmm. in the absence of this sort of external reward. So it's not for money, like I was saying. You can have an underlying medical condition, but that would be being played up or exacerbated mm. and lead to this excessive clinical intervention. So the examples that they put in the DSM. So uh, forgive us for belaboring the point, but I think it's it's. I think there's something kind of quite fascinating about the lengths that people will go to mm. that's been recorded, and it's not just sort of like, oh, I'm having a sick day from school yeah. kind of thing. This is like it's extensive. It's extensive and disordered. So the examples in the DSM: mm-hmm. reporting feelings of depression, suicidality following the death of a spouse despite the death not actually being true or the mm. individuals not even having a spouse. <laughs> Deceptively reporting episodes of neurological symptoms, so like seizures, dizziness, blacking out, so that's what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Manipulating a laboratory test, so blood to, adding blood to urine to falsely indicate an abnormality. Falsifying medical records, mm-hmm. like what you're talking about. Ingesting a substance like insulin or warfarin to induce an abnormal laboratory result. Mm-hmm. I've certainly heard of that in the hospital. Yeah. Physically injuring themselves or inducing illness in themselves by, say, like I was saying, injecting fecal matter to produce an abscess or induce sepsis. Mm. So pretty... Extreme. Yeah. And risky. 
Yeah, really risky. So you can see how it'd be difficult to diagnose, particularly a busy hospital or a busy GP clinic Mm. where there's not a continuity of care or people might get moved around from team to team. Mm, Absolutely. Like, oh, oh, this is a new, oh, they've got a neurological problem. Okay, we'll we'll transfer them to the different ward under neuro, Mm. the whole group of new new doctors who don't know the patient who would then order a whole lot of new tests. Yeah. Right. Diagnosis in psychology requires not just consideration of what symptoms are present but what factors mean it isn't something else so the disorders we can rule out are called differentials and they give insight into the disorder so a differential might be there's a disorder called somatic symptom disorder so a person might seek out attention or treatment but they aren't actually falsifying information they actually what we call somatize so they're feeling it so they actually might have a you know a neurological condition problem a weakness or something but they don't actually they're actually converting their stress into that Mm. in an unconscious way Mm. and so they actually would genuinely believe that they've got a problem which you see a lot with kids yeah you see a lot of stomach issues and things like that yeah that are actually probably better conceptualized as symptoms of anxiety. Yeah. And then it's also more common in particular cultures as well. Yeah. 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 And there's an extreme version, which is a different version, which is conversion disorder, where mm. someone will have a proper neurological problem, mm. but it won't conform to biology. Mm. Or the classic one is glove anesthesia. So, mm. so if you hold your hand out, if you, if you have like a nerve or paralysis, then your little finger and your ring, wedding ring finger, mm. those two would be paralyzed, but the rest of the hand you could move, mm. right? Whereas glove, but someone with a classic conversion disorder would say, my hand feels numb, mm. I can't use my hand, but it's in the shape of a glove essentially. So where the hand, the palm stops, mm. they would be able to feel up mm. the arm. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't match it the wouldn't biology. It wouldn't follow the neuropathway yeah so so those somatic symptom disorder or conversion right they would actually have symptoms but it just doesn't match Mm. with what we would think Mm. borderline personality which we've talked about a lot on this pod that can involve self-harm but the motivations are different so in borderline personality you do it to cope with distress Mm. right essentially so people would cut themselves burn themselves yeah threaten suicide whereas in factitious disorder you're trying to fabricate an illness Mm -hmm. And malingering, we talked about, you know, it's personal gain, time off work, mm. that kind of stuff. There's no, with fact, issues, so there's no obvious benefit. Mm. So just sort of my final thought on that is like, there's this spectrum. So unconscious or unintentional production of symptoms is a somatoform disorder, but this intentional production of symptoms, so that you can assume a sick role mm. for unconscious motivations, like that's factitious mm. disorder. And then there's intentional faking for secondary gain. That's malingering. Yeah. So... That, that should kind of give you a spectrum. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So where are you taking us? I found an article that was about online support groups. So it's the people who have the condition reporting on their own experience of it. Wow. Which I was looking everywhere for something like that going, someone must have found some information about this. Mm. There was literally this one study. Mm. Uh, so it's called When the Lie is the Truth, a grounded theory analysis of an online support group for factitious disorder by Lawla and Kirakowski in Psychiatry Research 2014. The study was conducted when the last DSM was in use, so the criteria was a little bit different then, and it really needed the intentional productional feigning of symptoms, and like you had to prove that things had been intentionally feigned, whereas now it's kind of detecting that those symptoms are fake, but not so much emphasis on 
the intent. Mm-hmm. So the authors talked about the parallels between the disorder and self-harm, like we've talked about, and talked about the common factors of kind of enga- endangering oneself with the potential of external validation or support, which kind of fits with the BPD self-harm stuff, mm-hmm. but with a different form of support. So we've talked about already that the research around this disorder usually involves case studies and so then you don't often get a feeling for what people's motivations are. So the theories that have been developed by researchers have been that this disorder develops because of early childhood trauma and psychological difficulties, issues with things like dependency, identity, self-efficacy, lost relationships, that sort of thing. But it's all observational and sort of trying to piece things together from without understanding what people would say about this disorder themselves mm, yeah mm, yeah because you don't because by definition it's hard to have an interview with this person exactly yeah. so their idea was can we use online communities to get a little bit of insight into the internal world of someone with factitious disorder and so they found two online support groups both had limited posts in the sort of recent years leading up to the study so they sort of considered it as a source of retrospective data and then they also acknowledged that it wasn't possible to know if all the contributors had the disorder mm. or if they only had one account like whether it was multi- the same person using different accounts <laughs> I was just thinking there's like for someone with factitious disorder being you know pretending they've got factitious disorder exactly <laughs> I did find a philosophical article that essentially was that is it possible to fake factitious disorder I anyway. thought that it would drive you nuts, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick it. that one. Um, so despite that, they thought, well, there are limited first-hand accounts, so it's worth mm. giving it a shot. So they found 124 posts. Which, which, so just, but like, yeah. I, I got the flavor of that from the incidents article. Mm. And what's really, really, what I've found really interesting uh, doing this thing, and on occasions on other episodes of this pod, you, you'll get some research topics that are like really, really well trodden mm. and they're kind of like, oh, well, we expect this thing and blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh look, we found this thing and blah, blah, blah. Like mm. it's sort of, it's it's actually quite boring. Mm. Whereas like, this is quite interesting because it's like, so this is what we think. Yeah. And look, look this is our best approximation and we're going to show you what it is. Like it's this really kind of refreshing, honest way of doing research or showing showing that kind of thing like and it's quite unusual these days unless you're looking at sort of like neuro studies or things like that where it's going well this thing has been around for quite a long time like it's been when was it first in the 50s eh? in the 50s yeah. so you know comparable to some of the other conditions that we've got a wealth of research about yeah and we are still kind of going, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll yeah. Figure it out somehow. But yeah, it's just, it's just sort of it's interesting, interesting to kind of like you get a flavor from the literature of this is interesting we're, and we're all in this together rather mm. than like, oh, well, I know this. Thing, yeah. I know I'm that. the expert on yeah, this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 So for their data, they used 124 posts by 57 members and they only used the posts that were talking about their own experience of factitious disorder. So no one who was speaking about a relative or, you know, using secondhand information. Information. So they used constructivist grounded theory to analyze it, which I'm sure you know a lot about. I have done my time in qualitative <laughs> research. Yes. You love it so much. I no, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but essentially, this perspective acknowledges that the because the people providing information are interpreting their own experience, it's not direct observable data. Mm-hmm. It's 
in an interpretation yeah. of what's going on. So when they ran through all of the posts, what they found were four main categories. And so I'm going to go through each one in more detail. But essentially, they were characteristics of factitious disorder, motivation, symptoms, and treatment. Mm-hmm. So for characteristics, they found that there was a tendency to describe an early onset. So 10% described the first onset occurring between four years old and early teens. And they linked it to childhood events. About a quarter of users reported that they'd feigned mental health conditions, which included things like BPD, suicidal ideation, panic attacks, eating disorders, things like that. About a quarter reported feigning physical conditions, so epilepsy, diabetes, injury, concussion, terminal illness were the most commonly reported. And about a fifth also reported comorbid genuine conditions, so that they also had depression, OCD, BPD, eating disorders, anxiety disorders, self-harm, bipolar... Mm. Yeah. In terms of behaviour, people described a conscious process of choosing an illness to feign and then researching how to do it. So they reported fantasising about enacting the disorder and the affection that they expected to receive. So it was this real process from start to then how they would act that out. The sick role was enacted by self-harm, exaggeration, and exaggeration, like you've mentioned, was of pre-existing illnesses, and then lying. And the primary goal of self-harm was hospitalisation and medical procedures to treat self-harm. Lying was considered to be sort of motivationally distinct. The aim was to maintain a relationship through pity. So if I can just sort of up the ante, then someone will continue to stay and look after me Mm. where perhaps they were going so the lies revolved around life circumstances such as pretending there'd been a death in the family or to have been sexually abused and then when the attention waned they upped the severity yeah so it was this constantly building thing it really does have that uh, like a similar flavor to a cluster b borderline Mm histrionic presentation doesn't it like yeah you know, doing things to induce behavior in others yeah, yeah as a response I, yep yep but being driven by an emotional need mm. like, like a real sort of wanting to be taken care of mm. kind of thing like yeah. it, it sort of fits makes sense you, know, you can sort of see how that would develop yeah the poor things yeah definitely <laughs> yeah so in terms of motivation 72 percent of the posts included information about long-term motivation So this included things like seeking affection. That was the most common one that was reported by about a third of people. Having a difficult childhood or having abuse. Enjoyment of other people's concern, of the attention, of the medical procedures themselves, being in hospital, the drama. And for the people who focused on enjoyment, they didn't want to be genuinely ill because they thought that would detract from their ability to enjoy it. (laughs) So they were different from the others who were kind of like, I can be genuinely ill. Yeah. It's worth it for what I yeah. get out of it. For those ones, it was, you know, an inconvenience. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Coping mechanism. Uh, there was a sense of achievement for some people that they'd managed to fool people. They wanted validation of a genuine disorder that hadn't been picked up. Identity issues. Some had external gain kind of things on the side. And only one person said that they had no reason for what they were doing. Mm. Uh, most people provided some sort of justification. of people reported triggering events for an episode and these were things that you've mentioned already. So emotional distress, life-changing events. There were things like distress when alone or fear of losing a loved one or being abandoned, sort of not feeling in control, all Mm. of those Mm. things to try and shift it. Mm -hmm. For symptoms, 
63% of the participants described symptoms that they were experiencing a sort of as a side effect of the factitious disorder as part of it. So a third reported poor mental health, about the same reported guilt and shame, a quarter addiction to the behaviour that they just had to keep on going. A quarter felt dissociation from their real self, so they couldn't, they began not to be able to tell the difference between the symptoms that they were faking and things that they might be experiencing otherwise, mm. or feeling like their identity didn't really exist outside of the disorder. Yeah, you could see how... It could blur. It could take over. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, negative self-perception. I mean, you, you see that in health generally. Absolutely. So, you know, someone who's been a patient for a long time with a particular problem, mm. you see it in chronic pain. Mm. You see it in, in a whole lot of those kind of more chronic conditions where someone has adopted a sick role or that's been thrust upon them. Mm. And then it's very difficult to shift them out of that. New procedures will come along when you go, okay, well, you need to be active mm. with back pain and then but they're they're still stuck in that thing yeah and it's incredibly difficult to shift them because they've because their whole life and the whole has been structured around and that. their whole social world will have been structured around that mm. it's know. a lot to work against and yeah and that and that's someone who's who did have a problem yeah does have a problem yeah, yeah exactly the last couple of symptoms were things around isolation sort of reduced quality of life and being ostracized by other people i assume the ostracizing was around being discovered or doubted or things like that. Yeah, or people just getting fed up. Getting sick of they're, they're, always oh, drama. Oh, there's always something up. Yeah. yeah. In terms of treatment, they talked about barriers to support. And so about two-thirds of people felt like there were barriers that most of them were sort of fears. So there were fears of disclosing to a therapist, of losing family or friends, fear of confronting the issues, of recovering, of perpetuating the disorder. So if they sought help for it, then they would receive care that then would kind of feed into their need to receive care. Mm. So a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, Mm -hmm. plus the usual kind of logistic difficulties. They also described recovery strategies that they tried. A fifth of people had tried various ways to resolve the issue. Uh, So they tried therapy, confronting the issues that trigger things, helping others to try and shift the focus away from themselves, isolation from other people so they couldn't assume the sick role, changing the environment... And then there were a bunch of strategies that felt like they were kind of imposing or focusing on fears to try and stop them from doing things. Mm -hmm. So focusing on fears of being incarcerated or fears of being found out, that sort of thing, and really focusing on that as a way to stop the behaviour. So Uh, you get a real flavour of that it's a bit uncontrollable. Yeah, absolutely. It's got a real addictive theme to it, which is really what the authors kind of focused on, that you could conceptualize it as an addictive behavior issue yeah. that, you know, the more you do it, the more you need, you need to do it. And that it has to get bigger and bigger. Like if you're using something else and yeah, you the hit to- does, isn't yeah, enough. Yeah. You develop that tolerance. Exactly. So they found that all the themes that came up matched the existing theories with the exception of enjoyment. That was one that they hadn't expected. And they found that the member reports of, of the symptoms that go along with it kind of counter the assumptions that a lot of practitioners have that the disorder isn't distressing for these individuals. Mm. That actually if they're experiencing isolation and poor mental health and things like that, that it is causing a problem that they're recognising. Mm. Uh, I mean, that was, I think, about a quarter of people mm. were acknowledging those, so perhaps it's a bit of a mixed bag. Although I wonder whether it's chicken and egg, like, so whether you, you, mm. whether you have a causal poor quality of life yeah, and then, and then they engage in this stuff which 
mm, continue get, to yeah it, they get it. sick and they get relief from that and yeah. then it kind of perpetuates it and then and then it can also add to their poorer quality yeah of life so exactly so i mean you get a real flavor of that this is a complicated disorder to yeah. like not only do we not uh, have much data on it mm. but in that it's it's so diffuse around how it presents yeah and what the triggers might be and then before you even get into treatment or anything like that which yep. was really highlighted in this that it was similar to addiction also in that there was high rates of self-management of what was going on and then low rates of actually seeking treatment mm. and a lot of the barriers to treatment were sort of self-imposed mm. so it was all about those fears and things like that rather than stuff about availability of care or things like that yeah so yeah complicated yeah so i was going to just talk a little bit more about features of mm-hmm. it hopefully we're not boring people by listening to it there is there's just a lot of richness and what i wanted to do was to for any people who work in healthcare to sort of just provide some information around what you'd be looking out for mm. and that kind of thing munchausen syndrome was named after Baron von Munchausen, so it's just like awesome name. It was like um, a fictional character, fictional, fictitious character, fictitious character, and it was like a world-renowned teller of tall tales. Mm. So, healthcare workers should be alerted to the evidence of several inconclusive hospitalizations, multiple scars, inconsistencies in the history. They might have employment as a healthcare worker themselves, mm. but it's also important to rule out that someone is not doing all this stuff for access to drugs mm. uh, having my first role was in drug and alcohol and like i'm i'm all, <laughs> i always look, look out for that stuff yeah. like it's and people often miss the fact that people look trying to get access to drugs mm. or behavior is driven by addiction mm. like amy was saying there's this need to be taken care of and to be nurtured they're compelled to be patients and when you think about socially a sick role is approved of mm. right you know and hospitalization is a primary goal and other incentives play the secondary role. There's something about a sick mm. person and particular types of sickness yeah. that are definitely socially approved of. Absolutely. And there's judgment of some illnesses and there's not of others. Yeah. Yep. So you can sort of see that. So it's hard to diagnose because we're trained to trust the patient's report. Mm. These patients aren't reliable historians mm. and motivated to remain ill and would undermine any treatment that's given to them, mm. right? And may run away if confronted. Also, they may develop new problems uh, during treatment, like dis- disorders de jour was the way it was mm. phrased, <laughs> and seek lots of opinions. They suggest two forms, middle-aged males that have dramatic presentation characterized by wandering or, now how do we say this, peregrination? Peregrination. Pe- peregrination, yeah. So and so that's a journey or a long, especially a long and meandering one. Is that related to the falcon? Could it be, could be the peregrine falcon. Hmm. And then there's the second group, which is the stable, non-wandering females, often unmarried, seeking medical treatment in their own community with a previous career in health. Now this one, I'm just going to interject yeah. slightly. I I found conflicting things about the career in health. Yeah, right. And the, the the general thing was, how do we know they've had a career in health given that they compulsively lie? Yes. And <laughs> so there was a few people kind of going, well, there's a tendency to report a career in health. But yeah, has that actually occurred? Yeah. And it was an interesting thing of going, for a lot of people, you couldn't prove that yeah. either way. Yeah, my reading of that is to be a successful factitious disorder, mm. you would need to have medical knowledge. And it would be helpful having yeah, that history, it would be wouldn't helpful. it? Yeah. I do uh, wonder, just 
thinking about that, whether there has been an increase in cases since there's been more availability of medical information mm. online or stuff like that. Yeah, like particularly with having a YouTube. Yeah. Like that would be You would be able to learn stuff far quicker than if you had to, you know, if go you, to the library or something <laughs> like that to keep finding. I'm going to go to study. Yep. I'm going to go to university and go yep. to some observational placements. Yep. And then, no. Yeah, yeah. so too much. Yeah. So we talk about this acute presentation managing current life stressor versus this chronic type not immediate psychosocial stressor and they seek medical attention to reaffirm that sense of identity comorbid conditions pseudological fantastica i love that which term. is pathological lying where they have the capacity to intrigue and engage the listener i think we should start a band <laughs> i'm sure someone has already <laughs> there's was a, there's a band called pavlov's dogs nice it's like idiots. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, like what you were saying, like onset reference I had was let's say the teen years or early mm. adulthood, so a bit later than what you were saying. Yeah. Often post a hospitalisation, intermittent episodes that can become lifelong, and there's a poor prognosis group would have this fabricated history of fainting symptoms, and then they would start, to, and then that would develop into a self-inducing illness. Mm. Right, so use that escalation. Mm. Uh, suggested they have a high suicide risk or risk of death from surgeries. Mm. So one figure that I read was that of patients involved in litigation, 20% had died mm. from the surgical interventions or something like yeah. that. So that's, that's that's one in five. That's a lot. Yeah, which seems to be a little bit higher than the rates for by proxy, but yep. still they're still pretty high. So the what I'm going to talk about later on is that it's 7.6% of children who have been the victims of factitious disorder imposed on another have died as a result. Wow. Yeah. So um, from the Schrader article, they suggested that treatment's difficult, not motivated to engage, success rate's low. They'd had a previous study and they'd, uh, where they had eight patients with this disorder and they talked about the, the financial cost of the health system mm. for these patients is really high. So average cost of more than 105,000 euros for these eight patients hmm. just because of like for faking it yeah. essentially. So Which you can imagine particularly with depending on what disorders they chose, say if it was something neurological or something like lots that, of lots of MRIs yep. would add up quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Schrader and colleagues suggested sending a detailed discharge summary to any patient that's got this where they suspect it. Mm-hmm. You send it to primary doctor, the referring doctor, health <laughs> institution, and all health institutions that the patient has had contact with. Whoa! <laughs> and so that, and they seem to think that that results in that person stopping their behaviour, altering their behaviour, hmm. which I thought was really, 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 really interesting. And they sort of encouraging using the diagnostic label, yeah, and sort of countering that. You might feel that that's stigmatising, but ethically the goal of preventing this like quite uh, high level of harm to themselves mm. and also I would say the cost of the health system which prevents other people other people from getting treatment is, is much, much higher. Mm. So my final thing was to talk about what to look out for for the fabrication of symptoms. Cool. So I've divided these into three groups. Mm-hmm. So presentation, unusual clinical presentation that performs to pop culture or misconceptions about an illness. Mm-hmm. And particularly if it gets worse with observation. So this is what I was trying to get at before, which is like if someone doesn't have a good, if they're not too sharp, Mm. not too intelligent, their presentation of it might be a bit comical. Mm. 
If yeah, that makes it doesn't sense. quite fit. It doesn't quite fit, mm. right? Whereas if they're more sophisticated, it will fit. Mm. Clinical presentation that changes with technological advances, non-responsive to standard treatment, indifferent to painful medical procedures, mm-hmm. frequently adding symptoms, might not match diagnostic criteria but matches their understanding of it, which is what I was saying, mm-hmm. a lack of referral letter or collaborative history. So in terms of history, they might have relations with a doctor or a career in health, mm-hmm. minor injuries would have resulted in invasive procedures or an amputation. Mm. So it kind of like it just wouldn't add up. Yeah. Bodily scarring, all this like gridiron stomach, which I Googled. That's <laughs> like lots of scars across, uh, across the stomach. Okay. Interesting way of phrasing it. Have extensive medical or psychiatric knowledge, numerous medical consultations, peregrination, that's that wandering, medical treatment during childhood. Hmm. And then psychological, family would be detached, cold, lonely, rejecting, withholding, explosive or abusive. Mm. Fears of abandonment and rejection when well. So this, so which I thought was an interesting idea is like, okay, well, this person's well. Mm. How do they present? Mm. These are the fears that they would have. Channels psychological conflicts into physical symptoms. They have a need to be taken care of and belief that they're only ever taken care of in the medical system. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> you can look at me very intensely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we go to factitious disorder imposed on another? Yep. Which is just such a mouthful. So Munchausen's by proxy is much a nicer name. It really is, yes. So DSM criteria, essentially it's the same as for factitious disorder yourself, except that it's directed externally. So falsification of physical or psychological signs or symptoms, induction of injury or disease, but in another person. Uh, The individual presents another individual, the victim, to others as ill, impaired or injured. The deceptive behaviour is evident even in the absence of obvious external rewards and it's not better explained by another mental disorder. And in terms of who receives the diagnosis, it's always the perpetrator, the person who's creating the illness, not the person who is exhibiting the symptoms who receives the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. So a pop culture example of Mm. that is in the sixth sense. It was a movie uh, by M. Night Shyamalan Mm. and Bruce Willis. Yeah. Haley E. Joel Osment. And Tony Collette. Yeah. And that, I don't know about you, but the first time that you see the girl that's (laughs) the the kid with Munchausen's by proxy. I don't know if it's the, the age that I saw the movie yeah. or what it is, but she is burned into my brain. Oh, really? No, I've just I've got no memory of it. you got no memory? She's so, under the bed in the vomit? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it just came back to me. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then, she, and then she's got okay. the box. So let's think, for, for, for people who have not, people who've not seen it, so <laughs> in The Sixth Sense, what comes out is mm. that there's a child that has died. Mm. and Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit too far gone, isn't it? If people don't know, then that's yeah. their own responsibility. No, no, so, 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 but with this character, yeah. there's a child that there's a child that has died mm. that that had been unwell, mm. and then there's a second child that's now starting to get unwell, mm. and it's revealed that the first child that had died had been videotaping mm. their mother putting, I think, like a household disinfectant yeah, into, into, the, her food. into her food mm. and she died. So the mother had factitious disorder mm. imposed on another. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite visceral. Like it's really nasty. It is, yeah. And so this disorder was recognised in 1964, mm-hmm. Munchausen's by proxy, 1977, and it was in the Appendix B of 
the DSM-4 and now it's in the DSM-5 as factitious disorder imposed on another. Just some characteristics, I don't want to talk too long, but you know, it's influenced by opportunity to induce illness. So like I was saying before, the telltale signs the child gets better in mm. the absence of a parent or caretaker. Actions would include, um, and this is a bit awful, poisoning, suffocation, mm. tampering with medical lines and specimens, messing with medication and exaggerating symptoms. So the purpose is for the caregiver. And bas- basically my, the literature I read was all, it was all um, mothers mm. saying that the purpose is for them to be the centre of medical drama, to assume the sick role vicariously. Mm. They deny the etiology of the illness. Mm-hmm. I personally had heard of a case but basically the parent would burn a child with cigarettes mm. and then would present as they were healing. Okay, yeah. And then kind of going, like, I don't know what this is. Mm. It's sort of like, sort of baffling, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Infants would, they would report apnea and seizures and there may be active illness induction mm-hmm. so, and might sort of present as feeding or growth problems. Whereas older kids, it would be like diarrhea and vomiting, mm. parental exaggeration, and there might be a bit of collusion with the child. Mm. The child might be colluding. Those children are at greater risk of factitious disorder in later life. Yeah. 9% mortality risk is the number I had. Mm-hmm. And if they survive, they're at risk of all sorts of emotional behavioral problems mm. as well as disfigurement. Like in the sixth sense, they, they focus on one child at a time in the mm. family. The perpetrator can seem very loving and attentive. Bonding with the hospital staff. Mm. And, you know, I think that's often a, in a hospital setting, you look for something that's abnormal mm. and what's interesting is you sometimes get patients come through and a sign of like a personality disorder or sign of some some kind of psychiatric mm. psychological problem is that they have that staff have really strong reactions positive or negative yeah yeah absolutely um, and i can kind of see that that this version of the disorder would actually for a lot of cases evoke a more positive response from general Mm. society and from medical staff like especially if they had young children there's kind of there's that societal response to a parent trying to cope with a sick child yeah yeah a lot of people are parents and they can put themselves in that you know that kind of thing other features might be bizarre or rare symptoms atypical onset of presentation persistent illness persistent injuries Mm -hmm. not responsive to treatment or if there's a history of a child in the family who died unexplained. And again, this absence of external incentives. The perpetrator gives false history, discharges the child home against medical advice, doesn't follow through discharge advice, doesn't consent to contact with past doctors, suggests medical procedures, mm. over-attentive, doesn't want to leave the child, doesn't seem to be that concerned about prognosis and intense relationships with medical staff. Hmm. So I mean, it all kind of hangs together. I to me that hangs together quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you? What's your kind of reaction to that? I I think it makes it makes sense, and I can also see how it would be an escalation from causing symptoms in yourself as well. If you kind of think about the escalation within the disorder of if this isn't working, then I'll go to the next level up. I can see how you would get then get from that to imposing it on someone else. Don't fall off your chair as I say this, mm. but what would that make you think about the perpetrator's attachment style? <laughs> Whoa. For me, yeah. like that sort of says to me like that the perpetrators is not bonding with their child. No. Like it's got like a disordered attachment. Yeah. Yeah. Disorganized push pull. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of have the kid around for an instrumental purpose rather than you couldn't say that it was a secure attachment. 
No. But it also, it's not avoidant and it's not necessarily preoccupied. It could be. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Mm. So, the last thing that we've got is a systematic review of the people who perpetrate Munchausen's by proxy. So, we are going to end this pod on like a lighter note, just so you know. Uh, Oh, yeah. Things we came across. Yeah, things we came across. (laughs) Uh, But so I found a systematic review that looks at the cases that have been reported and these authors term it medical child abuse. And so the article is called The Perpetrators of Medical Child Abuse or Munchausen Syndrome by Proxy, a systematic review of 796 cases by Yates and Bass in 2017 in the journal Child Abuse and Neglect. This article starts with talking about how difficult diagnosis is in paediatrics. So it often relies on the caregiver's reports, particularly for the younger children. And these authors talk about essentially the same thing that you mentioned, that pretty much any illness can be fabricated and it can be fabricated in a whole range of different ways. So, you know, someone who's trying to seek treatment for their children saying that they've got seizures could be reporting that they witnessed their kid have a seizure or they could be poisoning their child with a drug that causes seizures or they could be adding blood to urine samples to show an issue so it's not as straightforward as just going with whatever seems to be there they talk about how you can label this as a psychiatric condition but that they really emphasize that it's still abuse and still has the same impact on a child so they kind of liken it to what might cause say a parent to physically abuse their child and that that doesn't negate the impact on on the kids so they really frame it in that lens so what they wanted to do was they looked at all case reports and case studies and found 796 perpetrators to be included in the review in terms of prevalence the literature spans from 0.002 percent to 0.27 percent in general pediatric populations and then in specialist settings it's between 1 and 13 percent yeah They found that it's more often identified by doctors who specialise in illnesses that are hard to rule out, so things like food allergies and asthma, and that there are gold standard tests that they use for figuring this out in paediatrics, which essentially are separating the parent from the kid and seeing what happens, and covert video surveillance. And the problem is with those is that they're only used if this is already suspected. It's not like something that they just put in place for anybody that's coming in. Yeah. As with the adult or the sort of self-imposed factitious disorder, there's lots of case studies, but it's not really pulled together by anyone. So they wanted to whack it all together. So what they found was that almost all of the people perpetrating this behavior are female. So 97.6%, 95% are mothers. They broke down the other proportions and it was actually more likely to be Um, for this behavior to be shown by other caregivers like a babysitter or an aunt or someone like that than fathers Mm. yeah 75 so which which in the paper that i was talking about before they said that there was a male preponderance for malingering diagnoses interesting so for that secondary gain hmm yeah yeah three quarters are married and then for the rest of the stuff that i'm going to go through it's 
about what has been reported in these papers. So they kind of highlight that not all papers report on all things. Yeah. But so what they found was that mental health diagnoses were quite common. So things like personality disorders, a third of people had been diagnosed with factitious disorder themselves prior to then being diagnosed with factitious disorder imposed on another. Yep. Depression was pretty common. And then the rates of disorders were more commonly reported in case reports than case studies. So the prevalence of factitious disorder could be as high as 42%, which is what was reported in the individual case studies. Mm. And then a significant minority reported self-harm and suicidality, so just under 9%. Uh, There were lots of psychosocial factors reported. About 5% had been in foster care, 10% had previous criminal behaviour. Quarter reported obstetric complications. And what they found was that almost three quarters of the cases where obstetric history was described, there were complications around that that period. Mm. About a third had experienced childhood maltreatment and 7% had experienced abuse from a partner in adulthood. Mm. So lots of complicated interpersonal situations as well as mental health. Yeah. How how would you sort of pull all that together? I mean, it's sort of a... Yeah, uh, sort of a, uh, it strikes me as quite an unwell population outside of this disorder or yeah. like, you know, like, people who have been through a lot and it kind of, it feels to me like the kind of using this as a coping strategy really comes through with some of that kind of stuff, yeah, like, like not quite getting relationship, healthy relationships so, uh, or not quite. Yeah, like, you know? I mean, I guess to contrast it with, say, another disorder like bipolar disorder mm. or schizophrenia, which, yes, look, there are psychosocial triggers Mm. to components of those but those are disorders that there's a biological weighting to it and it's sort of mental health presentation and things Mm. like that but this they're unwell or Mm. they've been unfortunate or both yeah already before yeah you know like and i think i think that there's certainly an element of the fact that they probably have a high level of somatization Mm. anyway that kind of stuff yeah absolutely in terms of the method of abuse just under half fabricated things using words so descriptions of what had been happening for their kids 21 percent interfered with medical tests or treatment almost 60 percent induced the illness in their kids and then for about 14 percent of the case reports the child colluded with the perpetrator just over half of the cases the abuse continued when the victim was hospitalized yeah so while receiving treatment it it continued Mm. yeah in terms of outcomes about seven percent had some sort of financial gain like i mentioned before 7.6 percent caused the death of the victim the rates that were described of disrupted schooling seemed really low to me they were 12.3 percent and i think it must have been just that they didn't report on it because it would have to be through the Mm. roof if you're hospitalized Mm. that much and just over a third had extensive healthcare use which as you would expect pun puzzle yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah in terms of the discussion there's quite a bit to kind of go over but they mentioned that a healthcare op- occupation was reported in almost 50 percent of cases yeah, right. so same for the adult version but this was the article that kind of cautioned about pathological lying and about whether you can know whether someone has that background or not and for those who had co-occurring factitious disorder 
a lot of the cases described the patients escalating to by proxy when attention that they got no longer gratified what they needed Mm. and that if they were separated from the child their factitious disorder symptoms flared up wow yeah so it really it shows that kind of coping thing doesn't it that addictive you know like that kind of yeah need well like because one of the things that happens in addiction Mm. is that if you are addicted to a substance and you can't get hold of that, you use something else. Exactly. Right. Is this sort of a sign of dependence? Yeah. So, I mean, so that's when I say like that's that sort of over, that's, that has that flavor of mm, overlap. Definitely. Of meeting a need. Yeah. And like you mentioned, the children who have experienced it from a parent are at greater risk of developing it themselves in adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, they've got a bunch of recommendations for clinicians as well. Mm-hmm. They suggested doing some more screening for mothers who had a history of having factitious disorder and or childhood abuse. For kids who are presenting to hospital, doing some more kind of checking around that. Uh, they cautioned that people need to look at how the illness might be induced in kids and that inducing an illness in a child, particularly a younger one, might be a particularly lethal form of child maltreatment, to not assume that the perpetrators will cease their behaviour once the victim has been hospitalised and to not assume that all cases will have really detailed histories of extensive healthcare utilisation when it's kids that, you know, that might have been, it might be GPs or it might be over-the-counter things or things like that rather than what you see in adults. And then the last one, the last recommendation was caution around how you confront people who are involved in this kind of behavior given the the prevalence of suicide attempts and self-harm that that could sort of tip someone over the edge yeah i mean like it sounds like such a difficult and lethal and Mm. um just just complicated set of of problems yeah i I guess my thoughts are that if there's anyone who's listening Mm. who has a problem with any of these things Mm. whether it's in themselves or imposing it on someone else i guess my recommendation would be that you should try and seek out some psychological psychiatric Mm. help and that look i would understand that look that might be a bit scary Mm. and also it might be confronting Mm. and look it might you know might mean owning up to things that might get you in trouble Mm. but i guess my understanding of a psychologist would be that there's probably a core need there that probably if you engaged with the therapist over time you would probably actually start to get some of that you would actually start to feel better yeah yeah because this sort of really rings of something that a need that isn't being met despite the lengths of things so yeah some assistance might reduce that a bit yeah yeah any final thoughts before we go no. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, look, thanks for listening to that. That was um, very interesting for us to talk about something. Absolutely. A bit different to what we normally talk about. Mm. Shall we take a break? Yes. Uh, we'll be back soon with Things We Came Across. But as we try to widen and make more consistent... If it's too strong, then I've poured too much. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. So this is a break? Yes. What are we doing on the break? Drinking gin. Yes, yeah, so drinking gin. Yes, that's the main purpose of the break is yep. to drink gin. Unwind after. Unwind after. Talking about people abusing <sighs> children. Um, yep. So thanks for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Mm. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Two Shrinks Pod. We also have a website, twoshrinkspod.com. Nice and easy. Also, you can email us. Two Shrinks Pod. We've had quite a few emails 
this past month. And it's been nice. Yeah, sorry we haven't managed to get to more episodes of late, mm. but it's been really good to... We had, <laughs> we had contact from someone who was talking to us about ages ago, we had a poll about trait or tray. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that one. Which way did they go? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> it's on my head. Um, Fantastic. We've also had pictures of dogs in lieu of pictures of cats. Yeah. Which I will accept. However, cat people, like I know we're introverts, but come on, get on it. Rewind what do I want? People who are, they might be the, this, this might be their first pod. I enjoy cats. Hunter is a dog person. I want to fill our inbox with pictures of cats. Yeah. Uh, largely because Hunter always gets the email before I do, and mm. I think that would be enjoyable. I reckon the dog dog pictures are winning. They um, they are, which is why come on, cat people! Like I know yeah. you're out there. I know you're taking pictures of your cats. I've seen them in the wild. Yeah, and so if you and if you do send us a picture of your animal, it doesn't even have to be a dog. It can't be a snake. No, it can't be a snake. Then we will tweet it out on our. Twitter we will account. free fame That's for it. your animal. And if we get enough of them, maybe we'll just create a page of 2SP Animals. Pets. pets. Yeah. Anyway. It would have to be run by Cleo. Okay. Mike. <laughs> so, on the, on the website, it's worth checking out if you like the pod but don't know where to start because we've got the episodes, but that we've got the episode list by topic, yep. not just by order. And, and then also the things we came across that we do at the end of each episode, that's grouped by topic as well. Yeah. Because sometimes you need to hear all of the things about gin. Yeah, that's it. Which uh, we're going to get to quite shortly. Excellent. That section's looking very bare. Okay. <laughs> See you soon. So we're back. We are back. And so this is the segment called Things We Came Across. Mm-hmm. Some people, I think, just listen to this, get through the rest of the pod and just listen to this. I this, hope this so. Part. Or that they just fast forward. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Just like they're just driving along and they're on they're their Apple Apple podcast. Yep. They're just pressing that 30. 30, 30. They haven't worked out how to scroll. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with doing that if you're driving. No. <laughs> That's true. Yes. So, I want to kick us off with a fact. Are you okay? No. no. <laughs> You're fine. You can contain yourself. I want to kick us off with a fact that I don't know how... I don't think I knew this entirely. Okay. Do you know where the word shrink comes from? No, I don't. Okay. So, I was watching QI. Yep. In series 16, which is the current one, episode 13... There was a whole bunch of psych stuff and I was going to go full on QI and then I went, well, why am I reading texts from the sort of 18th, 19th century to prepare for this pod? That seems to just amuse me, not anybody else. I would have thought that that was totally our listenership. It diverted a lot from psychology once <laughs> I actually got in there. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But the fact that they had, which was about the origins of the word shrink, it yep. came from phrenology. So do you know about phrenology? Yep. yep. So reading the bumps on people's heads to work out what was wrong with them. Yep. The idea I've was... I've got a phrenology head in my room. You do? Yep. Yeah. The idea was that you could physically shrink the undesirable parts of your brain. Uh-huh. And so a person who was a psychiatrist was someone who shrunk those bumps. So does that mean we've named our pod incorrectly? Because we're not actually psychiatrists, we're psychologists. Yes. But, Damn it. But also, like, do you not remember me saying that to you right at the start and us going, well, it sounds good? Yeah, sure. Probably. You don't remember that at all, no, do you? <laughs> it sounds like something I would have gone, yeah, whatever. Yeah, because the other alternative was to Sykes Pod. No, and you went, that doesn't sound right. So we end up with shrinks. 
God, you've got a good memory. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, so. yeah, so it's shrinking the bumps in the brain. So, yep. you know, next time you're at work, just, you know. That's it. I'm miming pushing someone's bumps. <laughs> <laughs> I always I, I always do the neuropsychologists at work saying that they're just modern, like advanced phrenologists. <laughs> well, now I, you know. Well, actually, because the, the thing about phrenology, mm-hmm. right, so if you don't know what we're talking about in Google phrenology, you'll see like a picture of a head mm-hmm usually sort of rounded yeah, and then they'll have just portioned off little sections and say, you know, this bit is the impulse bit and blah, 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 mm. blah. There's a, an album by Pearl Jam called Vitalogy and in the liner notes they have a whole lot of that stuff mm. as well. But what's interesting is the principles of phrenology, mm. which is that this part of the brain does that, yeah. is actually Correct. A, sort of a... Well, a, someone. No, is, is, is a concept that has... Mm been maintained through neuropsychology yeah it's just that it's so specific <laughs> and it's nothing to do with the pattern of the, your skull oh, skull yeah 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 that's exactly it's right. just kind of like somewhere around here we do some stuff so there you go that's why we're shrinks so uh, that's it so yeah so things we came across mm. we've been asking people to send us in mm. some articles and we got a article sent to us by dr andy tag who's an emergency physician mm-hmm. it's called too tough at the top using latent class growth analysis to assess cool status during mil school it's in the journal of adolescence by uh hi young young and sandra graham mm-hmm. from the university of california mm. i was actually quite excited because i'm using latent class growth analysis in a current piece of research i'm doing so oh is that what's torturing you at the moment yeah nice yeah, it's gonna be it so is this just an excuse to claim pod time on like study time <laughs> no no because <laughs> this because this is a brief report so their stats section was remarkably Brief? Thin, yes. Okay. So, question. Yes. I don't even know why I'm bothering asking this. Were you a cool kid? <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> I was um, I was friends with people from all different groups, but I was not so, part so of that, the cool so kids. That's a no. It's a um, no. That's a, wait, you weren't, were you? Uh, I don't think so. You were no. friends with people in... Uh, yeah, I think we're the same. Yeah, you I, were the floater in between who could pick up on people's shit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not even sure that I was friends with the cool people. Mm. I'm not sure. What would... what have there, have there been times when you've been cool? Like moments when you've been cool? I think maybe. Yeah. I think that in my phase when I wanted to be um, <laughs> Ella Hooper, I think that maybe that there was a moment there where I didn't give a shit about anybody else. Yep. And people were, I don't know if they were frightened of me or yep. <laughs> what it was, but I think that there was a moment of kind of like, maybe I was a little bit cool. Yeah, I think yeah. that, that actually that actually dovetails with this piece of the research. The other thing was, was that I was the first person in my class to get a mobile phone when they came out. Wow. And so that made me cool for like two weeks until yep. everybody else did. Yeah, right. But that felt odd. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because yeah. I, <laughs> I distinctly remember going to a party and, and like realizing that I was the coolest person there. <laughs> that's that, that's weird. And that was not a good thing. I'm no. like, I need to leave this party. Yeah. I need to leave it soon. So these authors talk about some of the facets that are linked with being cool and mm-hmm. cool status, right? Ella Hooper's dreadlocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's more about the thing that you were saying about being sort of an outgroup aggressive mm. individual. Right, so they see some some studies suggest that aggressive, high status youth, the tough kids, mm. are nominated as cool by their peers, 
and that attaining or maintaining cool status is associated with aggression because you don't know what they're going to do yeah but they're also like but they i my thinking about it when i was reading this is it's independence mm. right so like it's animalistic causes, so they become across as independent right mm. yeah they've got more control than the rest of us yeah, well, they, 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 yeah, that's it, yeah. And similarly, performance at school, so doing poorly in school in early adolescence is often a sign of being tough or cool, mm, as yeah. has been found. I did not meet that criteria. <laughs> I cared too much. Interesting the results on okay. that. Uh, okay. Are you about to tell me that I was cool and I didn't know No, it? it's just oh. what you could have been cool, how you could have been cool. Uh-huh. So, but basically, 20 years too late. <laughs> basically, they talk about how, you know, Obtaining and maintaining high school high social status in a peer group is a critical developmental goal mm-hmm. for adolescents. You know, it can take precedence over other relationships, romantic relationships. Cool kids appear to possess characteristics related to prestige, power, visibility, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Notoriety. You know, you admire them, you pay attention to the cool kid, mm. that kind of stuff. It's not popularity, right? Cool kids can mm. Cool kids can actually not actually be that popular. They mm. can reside in the social margins, yeah. right? You know, there's that fashion comes from the gutter, that mm. kind of scenario. Yeah. So they did a longitudinal study mm. of 5,991 adolescents um, from, and they were recruited in the sixth grade mm-hmm. from 26 middle schools in California. Mm-hmm. So they did an assessment in the sixth grade in the fall or autumn as it's properly uh, pronounced um, <laughs> uh, in the is sixth grade and then repeated assessments in the spring of the sixth, seventh and eighth grade mm-hmm. for four time points, right? And so they asked these kids to list the names of the students in their grade who were the coolest kids. Okay. Right? So they didn't define it, right? And then the number of coolness nominations each student received was standardized within the school. Somehow I love that. <laughs> that's like that's, awesome. It's yeah. the definitive list of cool. Yeah. Okay. And also great. it's just horrifying in some ways as well. <laughs> it's like, that is like the most... Like if we, that we, was public, that I, would just torture I, as people. As psychologists, we deal with a lot of confidential data. Yeah. That would be the most confidential data you'd ever Absolutely. Come, ever come across. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, and then they asked them about aggression, grade point average, depressive symptoms... And they looked at uh, ethnicity as well, mm-hmm. right? They did latent class growth analysis. So basically, if you don't know what that means, is if you have longitudinal data, so mm. data more than once, so Over a two, three, four, five time points, this analysis looks at patterns within the data. So you don't just look at the mean at time one and the mean at time two and the time three and time four, mm. is you look at... Is there a group that goes from low to high, mm-hmm. high to low, um, stays the same, stays the same, sta- stays high, low, stays high, plummets, high, plummets yeah. that kind of stuff, right? So it's a really interesting thing in oncology. Mm. There's growing research around that. So what they found was that there was an ascending high cool status group, and that was about five percent. Okay. So, so the, they started cool and got ho- cooler. No, they, they, no, they they started moderate and then got cooler. Okay. Then there was a decreasing cool status group. Mm. Um, that was <laughs> that was twenty five percent of people. And then there was the largest group, which was the maintaining low cool status group. Seventy percent of people, <laughs> right? So I thought that was really quite interesting. And students in the high ascending cool status group 
and the decreasing cool status group were perceived as more aggressive at the beginning of middle school than students in the maintaining low cool status mm-hmm. group. And then they found a positive relationship between high ascending cool status mm. and grade point average. So basically that for most students, attaining and maintaining cool status across middle school requires not only standing out, so being visible and notorious, but also fitting in well enough academically to have a high grade point average at the beginning of middle school. So basically you had to stand out and then also be smart. Yeah. Right? Interesting. So you just needed to grow your dreadlocks earlier, Amy. Yeah. Basically. But so I find all that kind of stuff about who's popular, who fits in, who's cool, quite interesting. Have you seen the stuff on puberty? I'll have to dig it out. But so essentially it's that for the girls who hit puberty earlier are less popular, less cool. Yep. The boys who hit puberty earlier are more. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that, that continues throughout adolescence. Yeah. And so it's quite a risk factor for girls yep. if they don't. And for the boys who don't hit puberty until late, yep. it's it's not good. Yeah. I wonder how that plays in with the kind of edge. Yeah, they didn't talk about that stuff. But it kind of makes sense in a way. Oh, no, totally Identity-wise, I'm yeah, playing totally makes with sense. the risk yep. a bit. Yeah. And, th- and they talked about that. If you, the group in the high cool status group had a significantly higher level of depression than hmm. in the other two groups. And so the pressure to be more visible and attractive mm. in order to maintain it might result in depression. Mm-hmm. Being cool might be positive short term, not so good long term. Interesting. That's what I was sort of saying. Girls are more likely to be in the decreasing cool status group than boys. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, you know, it might be hard for girls to be negotiating being tough and smart at the yeah. same time. Yeah, that we're not allowed. Well, but that's a whole <coughs> feminist discussion for another pod. Uh, not allowed. Yeah. Not allowed. I'm going to take this microphone into a cupboard and rant for 90 minutes and then I'll be back. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for some neuro? So, oh, so, so thank you, Andy, for sending this in. And if mm. you've got any things we came across articles, twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or add us on Twitter. Yeah, or hunt us down like Laura Finlayson Short did. Okay. In a, you know, highly covert operation. So Laura Finlayson Short was on the pod last year. She was interviewed. She was. How's the research going? She's coming to the end of it. Mm -hmm. She's at that lovely point in a PhD where it's, you know, I have sort of involved myself so much in this topic. Why? (laughs) You know. That kind of feeling. I feel. I feel with. She's a, about to emerge like a beautiful butterfly. Yeah, I feel that <laughs> the the trajectory of a thesis postgraduate mm. thing is there's a whole lot of things, but you know when someone is is going to finish it mm. is because they just get angry with it. Yeah, like, yeah, that's where she's and, at, and not kind of like annoyed, like <laughs> oh my gosh, this is difficult. It's like, it's like no, it's I like, hate this topic more like, than anything. I in the hate world. it, and all I am going to do is yeah. go into university every single day until this thing is out of my life. And then I think she's flying out of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So she's the classic one that's going to be absolutely fine. But in the meantime, she, I think she came across this because it talks about the same part of the brain that her research does. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who's listened to Laura's podcast will be familiar potentially with this part of the brain. I am absolutely convinced that I'm going to massacre this research, but... Here we go. Okay, so she sent me an article called The Brain on Art, Intense Aesthetic Experience Activates the Default Mode Network by Vessel and colleagues in Frontiers of Human Neuroscience, 2012. You already look confused. (laughs) 
Just continue. Just continue? Yeah. Okay. So when we're viewing aesthetic material, so artwork, things like that, there are a bunch of different brain just ranges. Pictures. Just pictures. Just people. pictures. Yeah, anyway. When we're looking at pictures, but not all pictures, <laughs> just some pictures, <laughs> brain regions are activated. And there's a question of whether the pictures that we like or that we find interesting or kind of art yep. versus just pictures, whether that's universal or subjective. Okay? Yeah. You know what I'm thinking of? What? <laughs> is um, this Dirty Rock and Liz Lemon is like this. What is art? And Jack Donaghy is then like this. We know what art is. It's paintings of horses. Exactly. Okay. So the question is whether it's universal or subjective. Most of the previous research has looked at the common factors that, you know, the areas of the brain that activated for everyone when they're looking at artwork and but it hasn't really looked at the individual differences so the idea for this it was looking at those individual differences so where it links to laura's research is that when we were talking to her about social anxiety she spoke about the default mode network which is what she's looking at so it's the part of the brain that's involved in self-referential processing so thoughts about ourselves essentially and this research looks at the same area of the brain so they used 16 participants who viewed 109 images that were largely unknown. So most participants didn't recognize any images and no one recognized more than five of the 109. Uh, they were all from an art catalog. They completed the PANIS, so the positive and negative affect scale, before getting an fMRI scanner. So an fMRI is a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner. And so it looks at activations of areas of your brain as you're looking at stimuli for research like this so what they did was they lay in the scanner they viewed the images and then they were asked to indicate on a scale of one to four how much each image moved them and it could be any type of moving them so they were kind of given a bit of a blurb beforehand that they weren't just looking at images that they liked it was about their gut level response about which images were powerful pleasing profound anything like that yeah and then after the scanner they were shown the same images in the same order and asked to rate the intensity that each artwork evoked joy pleasure sadness confusion or fear disgust beauty and the sublime Mm -hmm. which must have taken them hours that was the first thing i thought but anyway So what they found was that there was very low agreement across participants about which pictures were moving. And so there was a lot of individual difference, which is exactly what they were after. And they found that there were differences in both how much the entire brain was activated and how much the default mode network. So the stuff about connecting it to them was activated. There was a whole lot of results that spanned a whole bunch of different areas. So I'm going to boil it all down into one, one thing. That your brain is far more active for the most strongly moving images. So for the ones that you rate, rated four out of four, compared to even if you combine the one to three all together. Yeah, right. So the ones that you really connect with, your whole brain's activated, and then the part of your brain that's thinking about yourself is really activated. Yep. The other bits that are activated are the bits in the kind of lower level of the brain, the emotion parts of the brain, mm. particularly ones like the hippocampus, my favorite place um that is around when the hippos go to school (laughs) the which is around memory so there's some sort of linking between emotion 
memory and how we think about ourselves when we're moved. But that kind of gets, I think that's interesting because it makes me think about that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you do, but then there's like a threshold Mm. and and then beyond that, like lots of things happen. Yeah. And you kind of get flooded with a whole lot of thoughts and memories and things. Exactly. But then we can kind of go about our daily life doing lots of things and we're not really that activated. Mm. Yeah, and that would make sense. And that's sense. exactly it. It kind of yeah, crosses so that level. Co- and then crosses, crosses the threshold. Bang. And then bang. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's relevant to us in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. So there you go. That's, that's, that's Laura's research. Thank you so much for passing on that research to us. I can totally see why you thought it would be a thing we came across. That's good. The last one. Mm. And the last time I think we talked, I said, you know, it's like I, I gave us a little journey as to how we got here. Yeah. So today was basically like we were messaging. Yeah. And I was saying, well, I've got lots of ideas. And then you said something about a gin club. What was that? Yeah. So my former supervisor works at the same place that I work now. And we ran into another at the coffee shop. And we're talking about how she's part of a gin club. And from what I can gather... They all bring gins that they've found. The first rule of gin club is you don't talk about gin club. Exactly. So she broke it. So I'm hoping I'm not going to get Mandy into any (laughs) difficulties. If the gin club's listening, please invite me and Hunter. If it's your first night of gin club, you have to gin. I think that's what it is. Yeah. 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 I can definitely do that. But so she was telling me about the gins that have been tried in gin club. Mm. And I felt like this was something that we should either join or start. Yeah. Yep. I'm so, open to either option. So, so that led me to perfect for gin and tonic, how context drives consumption with, within a modified bogus taste test. Do they re- also include podcasts as one of the um, environments? A <laughs> 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 uh, Question, would you drink gin in the library? You mean in my fantasies or in the real life world? Mm, both. Let's go both. In the real world, no. But I love. I don't believe. But that. I love being surrounded by books and drinking gin. So I what often seek out. What if you're bars. in like 1984 and he's talking about drinking gin? Totally. But I also seek out bars that have bookshelves and literary themes, <laughs> so I can drink gin. So it's kind of different levels of social appropriateness. If, if you were going to drink gin in a library, yeah. Would you drink more if you were by yourself or with a group of other people who are also drinking in a library gin? by myself? You would drink more than in a library with other people drinking gin. Yeah. Rebecca Monk and colleagues. Yeah. Publishes in Alcohol and Alcoholism, 2018. <laughs> I feel judged. <laughs> they wanted to examine the effect of social and environmental contexts on alcohol consumption. And they wanted to do this using the modified bogus taste test, the BTT. The bogus taste test is where you give people pseudo-alcohol. Mm-hmm. And you can look at their alcohol consumption. Okay. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Do they give any alcohol to anyone or is it one where it's just like false across the board? In this study, it's false across the board. Right. Sometimes they will spray a little bit of vodka in to kind of get like a little bit of a thing. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at drinking behavior Mm -hmm. without the physiological effects of alcohol damn ethics what they wanted to look at was the effect of groups and also environmental context of it Mm. drinking as part of large friendship groups is associated with increased drinking frequency presence of more same-sex friends Mm -hmm. it's been shown to accelerate drinking but like yeah so which makes well makes total sense like well i mean imagine if it's like heterosexual then you'd be like there's like other people around it's like oh no i'm gonna stay sober (laughs) like Mm. or i'm gonna stay more sober 
Mm. Or like your mates like, yeah, come on, drink. Yeah. Oh, that kind of stuff. There's all these subtle contextual factors that impact consumption. <laughs> My favorite bit with the article was like, it's found that the presence of posters uh, designed to promote sensible drinking may in fact increase um, <laughs> consumption. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Look, they have this like long lit review. The sights and sounds and smells associated with alcohol and alcohol-related environments can have an important impact on the inhibitory control. Mm-hmm. So even like the smell of alcohol mm. can decrease someone's inhibition yeah. to drinking, that kind of stuff. Which, is, which side note, if you're doing therapy with people with alcohol problems, yeah. it's actually really important to teach them. Yeah. So they use the BTT. Mm-hmm. So two studies, mm-hmm. people responded to an advert seeking volunteers to sample a selection of gin and tonic beverages. Oh, right in there. And help determine which garnish should be served, right? I have many opinions. So, so, so yeah, you'd be like, yeah, let's see. Mm. With study one, they attended one of two laboratories and they were set up with three posters, uh, 297 millimetres by 420 millimetres. That's <laughs> por- important. Portrait orientation. Yeah. Like, God, that's a lot of detail. Anyway. But so it's vital because imagine if it was 300 millimetres wide. Yep, that's it. So. Blind. One group of posters was library-related images. Mm-hmm. And the other one was depicting typical bar scenes. They've even got where they got those images from. Fantastic. They were also displayed at eye level. Um, mm. Study two took place at a bar on campus mm. or in a quiet area of the university's <laughs> library. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm just thinking like the Melbourne, the Bailey Library. <laughs> anyway, I love the exclusion. Participants were not permitted to take part in the study if they reported they were pregnant, mm-hmm. planning to drive, mm-hmm. breastfeeding. Or if they consumed any alcohol that day, and if they had, they would exclude from further testing. Um, in my study, they had to exclude three people. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So they briefed them. They gave them a fisherman's friend, so like it's mm-hmm. like a, a yep. mint to further disguise the lack of alcohol. And they were given three different drinks that were told gin and tonic. They were served with a different garnish, mm-hmm. slice of lemon and lime. What's with that? Yeah, I know. Like condition A. So Come like it should on. be lemon, then lime. separate condition lime. Who condition B, lemon? it was slice of apple and uh, condition C is cucumber. cucumber. Yeah. So cucumber's good. Had to be cucumber. I'd say, what would be your ranking? So we've got lime, lemon, okay. cucumber. So this and is where my apple. pretension comes in. Go. All right. Depends on the brand and type of yes. gin. Talk to me. Well, so like I always want a Hendrix with cucumber. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Hendrix and cucumber. Yeah. I often want like a four pillars with lime. Mm. Unless it's the uh, lovely lime, lime. spice Negroni gin oh that we're drinking God. this evening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but apple, I don't necessarily... I think I've only had it on like a tasting board when yeah, there's been multiple yeah, types. It doesn't seem right to me. It needs uh, to be I juicier. Go, yeah, look, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's, just, let's just get this done. The uh, <laughs> yeah, You brought so, yeah, me in. <laughs> so they... So they they, they did all this stuff to like mm. maintain the, the the pretense of the taste test thing. You know, they rate the drink, you know, what's their preferred garnish, blah, blah, blah. And they also gave them the audit, which is the alcohol use disorder identification test to see if they mm-hmm. had a drinking problem. So study All one, of the students were found <laughs> to have a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah. So 38 students in the first study, basically participants in the group testing uh, conditions drank more, mm-hmm. were exposed to alcohol-related cues, surprise, surprise. But also what was interesting was that participants exposed to neutral cues whilst alone mm. consumed more alcohol than those in the group testing. <laughs> <laughs> Second study, they had 80 undergraduates. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it was like pub or library 
and, and solitary versus group condition, mm-hmm. right? So basically social, so like you would drink more in a group condition mm-hmm. and they also found a significant main effect in the environment. So basically you would drink more in a pub. Yeah. Right? So that makes sense. If you're in a pub, in a group, you drink more than alone. In a pub, library, same thing. You drink more in a group than alone. Although, I don't know, if you start drinking alone in a, in a library. Yeah, who's like going to know? If you've chosen that. Yeah, like you you're just, pretty happy. You're just going just gonna to lean in on it. Not from personally. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Um, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. Amy, however, is no. blushing right about now. <laughs> I just seek out literary themed pubs. <laughs> the odd response, which was that people who drank more when they were exposed to neutral cues and they were alone, mm. they seemed to think that maybe that was because they drank more in order to better answer the questions for okay. the study because they couldn't check with other people yep. as to what the thing was. So okay. that was that kind of thing. So basically they were just, the the conclusion was that... Uh, Drink more with friends or books. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Drink more gin. <laughs> yeah. A sponsored message from Shrinkspot. <laughs> So that, that's the pod. Thank you for listening. I know it might have been long and rambling, but uh, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, we will try and get another one hopefully sooner than a month. Uh, mm. We've just been a bit busy of yep. late. And don't forget to rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. Mm. Uh, that really helps people find the show. And if you like the show, please tell someone about it. And uh, send us your cats. And send us pictures of your cats. Thank Thanks you. Thanks, <laughs>